You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, November 19th. I'm Jack Farley, joined shortly by Managing Editor Ed Harrison. But first, with today's stories, Haley Drasnan. Hi, Jack. Well, we saw markets mix Thursday. Both the Dow and the S&P 500 were down slightly at the time of this recording over renewed coronavirus fears. But the NASDAQ did find itself in the green. Notable moves higher were Shopify, Tesla, L Brands, which is the parent company of Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works, as well as the Nasdaq company that rallied after they announced a deal to acquire Verifin, which is a software company specializing in preventing financial crimes. But overall, the broader equity market was down on the heels of the U.S. jobless claims report. These numbers are ugly. It's a warning. Another 742,000 Americans filed for state unemployment benefits last week. That's an increase of about 31,000 from the prior week. This is the first time in five weeks that we are seeing an increase. The data suggests the economic recovery is being threatened by a rise in COVID cases. The U.S. is in jeopardy, really, of recording a double-dip recession, similar to what we're seeing in Europe play out right now. It's really troubling, you know, and likely indicative of what we're going to see in the next few weeks, you know, as cases continue to soar again and new restrictions are put in place in cities and states across the country. This is worrying, too, as we could see more layoffs coming. So overall, nearly 20 million Americans are currently on some form of unemployment aid. And then there's this red flag. 4.4 million Americans are receiving pandemic emergency unemployment compensation. This number is up from 1.4 million in August. That's the program for people who have been unemployed for months and exhausted their regular unemployment insurance. It is expected to end on December 26th if Congress does not act. That's the day after Christmas. And Congress so far has failed to agree on any new stimulus package for jobless individuals and struggling businesses. So we really need to be prepared for what's to come. Back to you, Jack. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Haley. Welcome, Ed. Thanks, Jack. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, um, great to be here. So uh, I read your newsletter today, uh, Credit Write-Downs. It seems like you've got your eye on the uh, virus as well as its economic impact. What are you seeing there? Yeah, it's a bit of a doom and gloomer, I have to say. Uh, I hate to uh, to put negative uh, information out. But I think that when it comes down to it, maybe two weeks ago, just over two weeks ago, I, I made a call saying that 
the shutdowns that we were seeing in uh, Europe were going to lead to a double dip. And Europe is large enough economically that we could probably call that a global double dip. But the U.S. was still hanging on by a thread. It wasn't necessarily clear where the economy was going. But I think that now that we've seen that the coronavirus case counts have uh, gone high enough to cause these sorts of rollbacks of the reopening and actually shutdowns in some cases, uh, we can really start to think about a double dip in the United States as also being a, a base case for uh, the end of uh, end of this year and going into early next year. Right. And uh, just to read the data, you know, I feel like we've been hearing and, and saying that the cases, the deaths, the hospitalizations have been rising. But just to give um, some uh, some numbers, uh, 251,000 Americans have now died from coronavirus. Um, just yesterday, it was uh, 1,923 people um, died and 172,000 cases were recorded um, on Wednesday. And if you, if you average it out, those uh, the percentage increase from two weeks ago is 77%. And, you know, you, you see the look at the same data that I am and the uh, the, the uh, increase in the cases. You know, last week, I feel like it was about 68%, 70%. So it's not just that the cases and the hospitalizations are getting worse. It's that the rate at which they're getting worse is itself getting worse. So uh, what's your outlook for you know, how this impacts economic activity going forward. Yeah, that, that's a uh, good point. And by the way, the, the one thing that we're missing there is the hospitalizations, because that's the real important thing. I think that you you put you put the nail on the head is, is that it's not just that the numbers are going up, but they're going up at a faster rate. So the when I talked about this, I, I said at, on credit write downs that you know, by by Thanksgiving, we should expect uh, to get to 2,000 deaths per day. Uh, and we're already at 1923 now, a week ahead of time. So we're there before. And as you rightly say, both the case count uh, increase over the last two weeks and the death count increase have accelerated. So I was just I was basing my numbers on numbers that were lower than the numbers that we are now. So since we're accelerating and, and these things happen with a lag, we can pretty much assume that we're going to get to the levels that I was talking about, which are the levels that we had back in the spring. The, the key here for me is hospitalizations. That's the one that we're not talking about. I saw a market watch report that said that we're almost at 80,000 hospitalizations across the United States. At the peak, both in terms of the first wave and the second wave, we went, went to 60,000. So now we're at 80,000 and we're already ahead by uh, 33% relative to where we were in those phases and it's going higher at an accelerated rate. So what you, we, the, the reason that there's a connection between uh, the virus and the economy is, is our shutdowns. And shutdowns happen either prematurely in order to prevent uh, healthcare system overload or after the fact, after the healthcare system already gets overloaded and you need to really uh, you know, shut it down. But once you know, the healthcare system becomes overloaded, uh, then policymakers are forced into to action and they have to, to shut things down to roll back the, the reopening, and in worst case scenarios, just have a lockdown altogether. So uh, given the numbers that we're seeing in the hospitalization rates and also the, the, the rate of increase, uh, we are likely to see not just the shutdowns that we have now, 
the rollbacks, but even greater numbers going forward. And that's where the healthcare crisis moves into the economic crisis. That's where the two come together, is via this route of hospitalization, uh, healthcare system overload leading to shutdowns, and therefore to uh, worse economic outcomes. And I, I would say, if you look at the data today, the jobless claims data that came out today, that's the first inkling that we're already there. Uh, the jobless claims numbers went up in the order of 40,000 over the last week. This is the first rise that we've seen in five weeks. And my, I had anticipated that we would get to this level by early uh, December. So again, the numbers are actually getting worse ahead of the, uh, the the levels that I was talking about two or three weeks ago. So the the deterioration in the situation in the COVID-19 crisis is so acute that I think that these numbers are going to get much worse uh, relative to what my expectations were. And that means that, you know, we have to start thinking about the economy not just rolling over but uh, the economy actually contracting. Right. And, and tell me, Ed, the importance of Thanksgiving and holiday season in general. I feel like normally that's the time when people uh, you know, ask for time off from work. They take vacation and they uh, you know, order a lot of things either from Amazon or uh, in, a, in a physical store. Um, what is, how is the uh, pandemic going to affect that whole dynamic you know, as Thanksgiving approaches so soon? Yeah, so I think uh, the way to think about it is the lag between case counts, then hospitalizations and deaths, and then shutdowns, uh, with hospitalizations being the real key uh, component. What, we would, what we're going to see with the Thanksgiving period is a period where, uh, according to the CDC, which has said, do not travel for Thanksgiving, and uh, seven governors who have also said don't travel for Thanksgiving, we're going to see a lot of infections because what the CDC is saying is that uh, actually a, a lot of the infections are happening now in small groups. It's like when you have a football party or when you have a small gathering at your house, especially indoors because of the cold weather outside, that's now, instead of these super spreader events that are large, this is where the spreading happens with people who are close to you, family and friends. Thanksgiving is going to be a perfect example of that. And so to the degree that people are going to uh, flout these uh, recommendations, and I think that they will, uh, we're going to see a big increase in the cases and with the lag, the hospitalizations and the deaths. And that lag being, say, two to three weeks in terms of hospitalizations, in terms of the healthcare system overload, where we're at 80,000 uh, in the, that are hospitalized now, that number is going to go much higher uh, in the the uh, the beginning of December and mid December, so by the time we hit Christmas uh, and New Year's, it's going to be uh, a much worse situation than it is right now. Right. So the pandemic uh, and the fact that it's worsening that is going to depress economic activity either through uh, people just not going out more because they themselves are scared, or by government fiat. So that's one thing, and I want to talk to you about how that's going to impact markets. But there's another thing that I know is on your radar, and that is the fiscal aid. Not just the fact that it's unlikely we won't get another fiscal stimulus for a while, but the fact that the ongoing efforts are going to expire uh, soon. What can you tell me about that? 
Yeah, so I think that, you know, when we're thinking about uh, the economy rolling over, that's growth rolling over. So growth going from, say, 2% to 1.5% or 2% to 1%. There, that's there's there's the growth rolling over to act, actual outright contraction, and usually you need an impetus, either a massive increase in jobless claims, uh, as an example, or you know jobless claims increasing, and then you add on another sort of uh, component of uh, of money being sucked out of the economy. This is where the fiscal uh, measures come into play. So there are two things to watch for. One is the fiscal cliff associated with a potential government shutdown. And I think that the date for that is December the 11th, that if the government doesn't come up with uh, a, um, a, a, a budget to get over the impasse between uh, Republicans and, um, and Democrats, then we're going to have a shutdown of the government. Uh, and we've had those before uh, uh, lasting as much as a month, and that's going to be negative for the economy. The second thing is uh, the CARES Act thought that by this time, we might be through the worst of it. And as a result, a lot of the things associated with the CARES Act expire. Uh, there are two dates there, December 26th and also December 31st. The 26th is when pandemic assistance for many people lapses entirely. Not just some people, every single person who is getting pandemic assistance will be kicked off the rolls as of December the 26th. Uh, also, starting at the end of the year, you'll be able to evict people from their homes if, they, if they're past due. So all of these three things are coming due within the next five weeks. And those happening at the exact same time that I'm anticipating a mushrooming of the uh, hospital overload cases, that is the number of states where you do have a hospital um, overload, uh, those two will combine into a very pernicious brew, which I think means it's not just rolling over of the economy, but out, out, outright contraction. And let me just say, in the past, when I've looked at the numbers for jobless claims, usually it's a persistent increase of 50,000 or more uh, over a certain period of time that triggers uh, a recession. Every single time that jobless claims have jumped up, over a, a, a discrete period of time, usually it's a year or six months, but here it's happening very abruptly. Uh, that's enough of a shock to uh, personal income that it, it triggers recession. And so the levels of increase that we see now already, if that continues on some level and maintains itself, then uh, we would have that sort of uh, income shock. Yes, a pernicious brew Indeed, as you say, we've got the pandemic, we've got the fiscal, uh, the CARES Act expiring soon, the prospect of a government shutdown, that's three you mentioned. I might add uh, many of the Federal Reserve's specialty programs that they launched in March and April are set to expire um, on December 31st. I think actually eight, eight out of the nine programs are set to expire on the 31st. Now, it's not as big of a risk because the Fed uh, is not a super democratic institution, so it doesn't. There, there, there was, there's no gridlock, and they probably will roll it over. Um, but we have these looming threats. Um, so this is the world that you and I are witnessing. Um, but the market perhaps is witnessing a different world because uh, the S and P is hovering about uh, around all time highs. Um, bond markets are, um, you know, well actually rates are, are, are rates are low in the, in the uh, bond market. Uh, the VIX is at 21. Uh, the lowest level in, in many months. Um, 
let's consider the counter argument. What do you think the, the people who are, let's say, you know, shorting the VIX and buying equities? What, what are they saying? I think they're saying that, you know, the Fed will ride to the rescue, that there's a lot of liquidity that's that's baked in there. And that uh, in in worst case scenarios, actually, uh, you know, if fiscal is not happening, then you're going to get a monetary offset. So if the level of fiscal that's needed is here and you get this level of fiscal, then if the level of monetary support that equates to that fiscal that you would normally get is here, then you're going to get this much. So there's that offset between those two. And the, you know, the, the amount of offset that you need to have from a monetary perspective is gargantuan compared to what it, you would get on the fiscal side. So it's an absolute torrent of money that could potentially get into the markets. We're talking about uh, you know, not just quantitative easing, but qualitative easing moving into uh, you know, individual names in the investment grade credit market going uh, into uh, junk bond ETFs and then potentially taking further action in order to, uh, to stave off any sort of liquidity problems that you would have. I mean, my, my biggest worry is that you will have liquidity problems for individual companies that, you know, the, the sectors that are going to be hit the hardest, and especially small businesses who won't be getting as much of the Fed's liquidity, they're going to go to the wall and that's going to cause an unemployment crisis where those jobless claims are going to go up above that magic 50,000 level and, and stay there for a, enough time that you're going to get, uh, you know, a, a recession. But it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that markets are going to go down, you know, because the stock market's not the economy, as people always say. Uh, I, th I thought it was interesting to talk to Michael Howe. I still am thinking about the things that he said, saying that uh, the numbers uh, in terms of the actual uh, monetary response in 2020 have not been met by the numbers in terms of the market response, that there's still more upside for the market based upon the existing liquidity that's been injected into the system. And, and yet we still have the potential for more liquidity. So I think that's, uh, that's what we could say. Let, let me just tell you also in terms of where markets were today that I thought was interesting. So you had the 10-year at 85 basis points, that's relatively high. That doesn't show to me any sort of, even in the bond market, you think of the bond market as the canary in the coal mine or even junk bonds. There's nothing in terms of the spreads there that are that's saying that bad things are going to happen. Uh, you saw a WTI at $42, over 42. There's nothing there that says bad things are going to happen. Uh, and at the same time, you have the equity prices. I, I Across my screen, I didn't see any sort of major moves in equities. And then the thing that I found the most interesting of all of this, the, the last thing is the dollar index and uh, euro dollar, um, EUR, USD, because, and I, I spoke to Tom Thornton about this yesterday, the DXY is at the lowest levels that we've seen since, uh, you know, since uh, we had this crisis. There were, it dipped uh, once before to about the levels where we are now, and it's back to those levels. And the euro is breaking out almost to the 119 level. Uh, those are numbers that don't suggest stress because usually what happens when there's a stressful event, there's a flight to liquidity, there has been a flight to the yen already thus far, but there hasn't been this flight to the US dollar. The US dollar is weak. It's at the weakest part of the range that we've been range bound in since the pandemic began. Uh, Tommy Thornton was telling me, however, that you know, DeMarc indicators that he's looking at suggest that 
we're at the bottom of that range and that he sees a, a move back. So to the degree that the yen move and now potentially the dollar move are presaging uh, some sort of, of, of stress, people a flight to quality, maybe that's something to look at. But none of the, the numbers that I'm seeing uh, thus far suggest that uh, the, the problems that you have in the uh, real economy are spilling over into the financial economy. And before I forget, let me also just add that I think I told you offline that in Europe, there's also similar problems in terms of gridlock. And this happens because of Hungary and Poland are at loggerheads with the rest of the EU about uh, the their ability to have uh, political uh, discourse. Uh, you know that potentially they're going towards a more authoritarian regime, and they're not going to disperse funds unless these guys say that we're going to roll back any of these 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 more authoritarian types of measures. Uh, and so Hungary and Poland have vetoed uh, the aid from the EU, which is in the order of, you know, trillions of dollars of, uh, of euro, uh, trillions of euros of aid. Wow, that's uh, really interesting about uh, Hungary and Poland. I've just got the um, euro, uh, USD, uh, EUR on my screen. And uh, I am seeing uh, what you're saying in terms of what Tommy Thornton said. Um, it also makes me think of Oh, uh, Russell, Russell Napier uh, a week ago said that the, you know, many currency euro, like the, the, the U.S. dollar had about four versions of it. There was the continental currency, which went bankrupt, the greenbacks, which had problems. And then, you know, ultimately it was the dollar. So he thinks that the, the euro is essentially a doomed currency. That um, also makes me think of uh, the people, sort of the dollar milkshake crowd who think of uh, all these emerging market um, countries that have debt. Uh, that's dominated in dollars and that if the dollar goes up, uh, that will just suck all that liquidity uh, into the countries, which will be very good for the dollar. Um, I think that argument is uh, a very compelling one. I will say to the people at home who think, oh, uh, the dollar is going to go up because of the emerging market thing, I'm going to buy the DXY. Just remember, uh, the DXY uh, is consisted mainly of uh, the euro and the yen. Um, so there are not a lot of emerging markets uh, currencies in there. Um, interesting. Uh, and I, I don't... Um, Though your framework is on this, but uh, the, uh, Turkey uh, did a major, major uh, raise of its its rates. Its uh, current account has been in shambles and uh, deteriorating over the past uh, years. Um, and finally, they, they raised rates, which is what the uh, uh, international community has been calling for. Um, do you do you have any views on uh, rates um, either in the U.S. or in Euro or in in, in the European Union or emerging markets generally? Uh, you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I have some thoughts on that. Uh, but, you know, even before I get there, let me tell you, because uh, I was looking earlier today at the chart for DXY, and I thought it was interesting uh, if you uh, sort of subdivide it into various periods of time over the last year. You know, there was a period where it was floating around 98 uh, right up until the crisis. And then it went way down to the below the 95 level and then spiked up 
dramatically well above 100 all in one fell swoop. I mean, it was a this is the the essence of the liquidity crisis. So there was no uh, there was uh, there was no hint that this was going on uh, before it actually happened. It was very abrupt down and then up. Then we had sort of a level where we stayed during the lockdown, which was around 100. It dropped precipitously to a new level, uh, stayed there for a little while while the reopening was happening. And then towards the middle of the summer, it's been in this lull between, say, 94 and 92, where it's been now. So we're at a level now that we haven't been in the entire period before the crisis. So before the crisis, we were at a higher uh, level. We peaked up, we went back down, and now we're at this level that's lower than where we were before. So I think that's very interesting in terms of thinking about what could potentially happen in terms of, I think that you know there's some binary outcomes there in terms of falling below the levels where we are now abruptly or spiking up fairly abruptly. And that would be where you would have the problems with the emerging markets. Uh, with regard to rates, the thing that I find most interesting is the Chinese um, uh, finance ministry going out and, and, and actually going in euros at uh, a negative rate. I got a, uh, um, a direct message from Stephanie Kelton, who's a MMT -er. Uh She was asking me what the hell is going on there. I mean, the Chinese are basically taking on liabilities in foreign currency, which anyone will tell you, especially in the MMT crowd, that you don't want to do. I mean, if you're a sovereign, the way that you uh, protect your sovereignty is by issuing liabilities in a currency that you can print ad infinitum. But basically, with the uh, there's so much demand for uh, for for bonds. Get this: the Chinese uh, five-year uh, uh, issue in euro. They they wanted four uh, four billion euros. They got 18 billions of offer for a bond that had a minus. 0.15% coupon on it. So 15 basis points below zero. So a negative uh, yielding asset from the Chinese finance ministry in euros. That's what people are buying these days. So that tells you that people are starved for yield because the, the yields are so low in Europe right now, they're willing to buy money from the Chinese uh, you know, four and a half times oversubscribed. I just find it absolutely astounding. Yeah, that that is wild. You sent me that story maybe 20 minutes before uh, this. It it bamboozled me. I actually I looked up the issue. I think I found it on um, Bloomberg. We can we can put it on screen. So it's a zero coupon bond, meaning there's no interest uh, at, at all at all. The only um, it, the interest rate is paid um, when the principal is paid back. So generally, because interest rates are positive, um, it would be but it would be sell uh, be sold below $100 because $100 is par. Um, but the, the bond was bought at 100.7, and I think it's now trading at 100.9. So we do have some uh, negative yields. Um, Ed, I'm, I'm curious, is this the first bond that uh, is sold at a negative interest rate outside of the European Union? You know, uh, I, I don't know if the Japanese have sold in their own currency, but I think that the combination of uh, it is sold with a zero coupon, meaning that you know the duration of the bond is the duration of when you get your interest payment back. It's basically, yeah, as you said, zero coupon bond. So you know, maximum duration. 
uh, and the the fact that it's uh, a foreign issuer. It's it, you know it's a it's a other government issuer. That, you know they can't create euros. I think that those two are very interesting parts of facets to this. It's just a, a facet to you know how this whole thing is shaping out. I don't have a, a view as to what that says, but it's another sign that you know markets are awash in liquidity. People are, are desperate for yield. They'll do anything. Uh, until the shit hits the fan, and at that point, then they're going to run for cover. And but we're not anywhere close to that at this point in time. Yeah, um, it makes me think. I'm just going through a, an interview which uh, Kyle Bass did with Steve Clapham. It's, it's going to air next Tuesday, and uh, Steve Clapham did a deep dive on these five uh, Chinese tech stocks, including um, Alibaba and Tencent. And, and Kyle Bass basically makes the argument that uh, U.S. investors who own uh, Chinese stocks, you know, they own U.S. depository receipts. Which, if if uh, things end up badly with the U.S. and China, um, maybe maybe they won't end up owning that. So uh, I think Kyle's uh, Kyle's argument there is not one that's held by many people, but uh, it's something to consider when you think of uh, people Ur- Europeans buying uh, bonds priced in their own currency from China that are that have negative rates. It really is remarkable. Yeah, uh, I, 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 you, you'd be loath to think that the Chinese would renege on those promises. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, we, we're living in a brave new world. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's the world of of real vision crypto, uh, and I think that uh, that's why real vision crypto exists. By the way, definitely, uh, the phrase "brave new world" makes me think of paradigm shift, which perhaps we can explore. In a minute, but because you mentioned Bitcoin, um, that asset is now trading over eighteen thousand um, dollars. I have the price in front of me right now. Um, what do you make of that, both from a technology standpoint as well as uh, thinking of Bitcoin as a macro asset? Yeah, I think that. Uh, I mean, here's how I'm thinking about it in terms of uh, a real vision. This is just a, a purely from a real vision's perspective. I think that we're, you know, there are multiple things that are happening that are going on now that you can call paradigm shifts in terms of, you know, uh, this pandemic, uh, where, where people are living, uh, where they're vacationing, uh, how intensive monetary policy is being used, things of that nature. And of course, uh, cryptocurrencies, digital assets fit into that very nicely. For me, part of the paradigm shift uh, from where Real Vision stands is that you know we've been somewhat early to the game in terms of thinking of the crypto space as something to look at. I think that most people who are in that space are much more avant-garde, they're fringier than the yep. mainstream. And so uh, the mainstream doesn't want to wade into that pool or hasn't wanted to wade into that pool for that reason. It's a lot of volatility in cryptocurrency assets. The last time I was talking to Tommy Thornton yesterday about this, we were getting the dates wrong in terms of you know where it topped out at 18,000 in 2017. Was it 2017, 18? It was actually the end of 2017, December of 2017. Then it fell off a cliff. However, now we're hearing Stan Druckenmiller we're hearing about Paul Tudor Jones getting involved. We're hearing uh, Jack Dorsey Square putting 1% of their assets into, uh, uh, crypt- into the crypto space. All of these things are saying that we're now on the precipice of a, um, you know, a-, a space which is going mainstream, if you will, uh, because you don't see this institutional money entering into the picture unless there's a mainstreaming of the asset space. 
so I think it's a really exciting time to be involved and to be thinking about it. Um, I don't have a, a view as to whether it is a store of value that's superior or inferior to gold or whether Bitcoin or other uh, um, alternative uh, cryptos are better. But I just think that we're in a brave new world uh, and, uh, and, and crypto is a big part of that. Definitely. I, I feel like um, there's an attractive backdrop of the reasons you mentioned of technology. People are uh, Jack Dorsey, Stan Druckenmiller, Paul Tudor Jones, and actually Hugh Hendry. You know, Raoul asked Hugh Hendry in his interview on Tuesday, um, uh, what do you think of Bitcoin? And, and Hugh said, you know, I, I'm a little bit skeptical, but hey, if it's good enough for Paul Tudor Jones, it's good enough for Hugh Hendry. And, you know, people's names, uh, people, well-respected investors that carries weight. Um, and companies like PayPal uh, going into that space, that carries weight. I, I think I was watching Jim Cramer the other day and someone asked him about Bitcoin. He says, I don't hate it. Um, you know, maybe I think I'd, I'd probably buy PayPal because they're invested. So, you know, I feel like Jim Cramer in 2016 would been, wouldn't even, they, the producer wouldn't have even taken the call, you know? Right, um, yeah. So we definitely are uh, on the cutting edge. And I think I, and this is my own personal belief, I think Bitcoin is a compelling macro addict. I'm definitely not uh, into it as much as, say, Raoul or Ash or Sebastian. Um, but th that's my subjective. But I think it's very uh, interesting. I kind of feel like the central banks are just putting a lot of butter in the pan. And I think that there's there's a lot of liquidity sl sl uh, sloshing around. And I mean, how much more can can Apple go up? How much more do you think, uh, you know, is, is the value rotation going to continue? I, I think there's a lot uh, of potential um, there. That's my own personal view. But on an objective front, I think that uh, Real Vision Crypto, which officially launched um, yesterday, is the place to be um, for crypto investors as well as um, entrepreneurs and just people who want to learn more about the space. You know, there are a few podcasts sort of littered about, but I think in terms of being a, a mainstream video brand, I mean, I, th I think we kind of uh, are the only game in town. I don't know about you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that, that you want to own that space before everyone else is in that space. I have two questions on that front for you. Uh, uh, I have a question and then I also have a comment. Let me make the comment first, you know, because it goes back to what I was talking about before in terms of the, the monetary offset. So let's just say that bad things happen in the economy and you feel that the government is going to intervene in some capacity. If they do, the optimal intervention would be of this ilk with uh, fiscal policy here and monetary policy here. To the degree that fiscal policy doesn't compensate, it goes down this much. Monetary policy has to overcompensate going up this, but not just a little bit, but a lot more. It really, they're, they're going to turn it on. And so this is where Bitcoin comes into play. So I, this is what I'm telling you, I think is going to happen. This is what is happening right now. That is why, uh, you know, Bitcoin is an interesting thing. So that's my observation, number one. Uh, this question I wanted to ask you had to do with Hugh Hendry and the title of that uh, piece, We're Not in Kansas Anymore. Uh, I, I was thinking about uh, Tokyo, uh, you know, what, what is the uh, Toto and, uh, and Dorothy? Yeah. Uh, wh what, what, was he, what was he talking about? Um, well, Hugh, you know, you know the uh, yield curve, and it's generally upward sloping. Um, you know, it's a lot lower than it was. Uh, a year ago, and a year ago was a lot lower than it was 19 years ago. Um, generally, you know, the rate, the trend over the past 40 years has been rates have gone down. That's been a very, very good trade, um, especially if you use leverage. Um, ra uh, excuse me, Hugh. Uh, 
there's a problem though with that, which is that uh, short-term rates are the the short the yield curve is not steep um, because the Fed has injected all this liquidity by buying long and twenty-plus year uh, treasuries. Um, that has made the yield curve relatively flat, and as a result, um, it's not profitable for banks. So that's why banks don't lend. And you know, uh, the Federal Reserve can pump in all of this liquidity to banks, um, but the banks can just hold on to it. They're, they're trapped. It's sort of like uh, they're, they're trapped in amber. So Hugh just wants to shock that system by just taking the yield curve and just sinking it well, well below, not just to 50 base, negative 50 basis points. He actually thinks that's pr pretty quaint. He says, no, I want it rates as low as negative 3%, maybe negative 5%. So it's just People who are, you know, retirees who have cash, they say, no, you have to put it to productive use. It can't just hold it in your vault. And if you do, I'm going to take five percent um, every every year. And yeah, the reason uh, not in Kansas anymore, Hugh is quite fond uh, of the Wizard of Oz, and he frequently refers to the Fed as the magician behind the curtain or the man behind the curtain, and that everyone thinks it has all this power, um, but the power is sort of because we believe it has power. Sure, it can pump all this liquidity into the system. It can lend money to banks, but it can't force banks to lend into the real economy. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I'll have to take a look at that that in its full context because I was th I was there uh, before the, I, the actual interview. I remember saying that I'd like to see the two of them to get together, and I haven't had a chance to watch it. But I will say that uh, if you if you talk about that in the context of what Bill Campbell told me about digital currencies, digital central bank money. Uh, those two come into the fold in a very interesting way. And I think, you know, just going back to our conversation about Bitcoin from that perspective, you know, that gives you more impetus to the degree that government doesn't confiscate your money uh, for cryptocurrencies that are not state sponsored. Uh, very interesting stuff, I have to say. Yeah, um, super interesting. You know, Ed, I actually, I was really looking forward to this conversation with, uh, between the two of us. I wasn't expecting us to talk about Bitcoin uh, so much. It, it kind of just uh, came out of nowhere. I wouldn't have thought that uh, we would have had so much to say, given that we are not officially on the crypto team. You know, I sort of book interviews, you conduct the interviews, and most, the vast majority of them are not on Bitcoin, whereas Ash is mostly focused on, on Bitcoin now. Um, so it's kind of like we're like the, you know, we're, we don't play basketball professionally, but we play on the weekends. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Well, good. Uh, yeah. Jack, let's make this a once a week occurrence. Uh, next week, uh, I understand you've got uh, Mr. Tyler Neville to uh, talk to uh, at some point in the week. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so I'll be talking to Tyler Neville on uh, Monday, and he's got a, a very uh, hard view on credit. He's uh, very bullish. And I have to admit, over the past two months, he's been right. Um, so I'm, I'm going to definitely, I'm going to do my homework over the weekend. So that's on Monday. And then you and I are filming an AMA on Tuesday for RVDB that airs on Thanksgiving Day. Um, and I posted uh, a question in the exchange, like, what do you want to ask Ed and me? And uh, there's some really good questions. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Good. Yeah. Excellent, Jack. So uh, until Tuesday slash uh, Thursday, I'll see you then. Yeah, great. Thanks so much, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.